Hey y'all and welcome to the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders and I want to thank you for tuning in to listen today. We're coming back from a little bit of a break. We took a little break over the holidays. I hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's. I know I did. I spent a little time cooking some barbecue for the family. Watched a lot of football, a lot of basketball, really all the sports and just kind of detached for a while. Spent some time in the wood shop. It was just a, it was a really great holiday. That said, I'm very glad to get back to the podcast as well. But before we get there, I just want to tell you guys about a couple different things coming up, specifically with Applied Network Defense. We obviously offer a lot of unique training courses, and we have a couple with deadlines coming up really, really soon. So if you're listening to this, you have uh, really uh, about a week or less till our next run of our Investigation Theory course. That's the most popular course we run. It's taught by me. Uh, And we have a lot of neat things going on in there. It's certainly a course very different than anything you will have ever taken before, but it teaches you how to think like an investigator, the analyst mindset, as I like to say. We do that with a lot of theory, but also tying it to practical concepts and giving you an opportunity to practice your investigation skills through a simulation tool that was custom developed for the course and I think is really, really fun and really exciting. So that deadline's coming up in a little less than a week. Uh, we also have our ELK for security analysis class. So that's Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. People really love that class. It's a, more, a lot more hands-on than investigation theory. You're actually using the tools and you're going in and you're creating uh, different data sets. We look at real-world data sets. So you know, flow records and bro logs and Windows event logs, all about indexing those, collecting those, and preparing those for the analysis process, also creating things like visualizations and things like that. So a really fun class, uh, not too long. It's just really the right length, I think, and the deadline for that is coming up in a couple weeks as well. So be sure to check those out. You can find those uh, on our course page for Applied Network Defense, and that is at networkdefense.io. Now, our guest today is Jennifer Coley, and Jen and I worked together during my time at Mandiant FireEye. We weren't on the same team. She worked on the intelligence team, but we interfaced quite regularly due to my role leading a rule development team, and she was always so great to work with. I thought she'd be a perfect guest for the podcast because she has such a wealth and diversity of experience. She spent time as an investigator with the government before going into the private sector and eventually landing at Mandiant. She's one of those rare folks who can not only create and produce very valuable intelligence products, but also she's really good at relaying those, both to technical and non-technical audiences. And that eventually led her to a place where she was able to testify to Congress about some of the things the Intel team at Mandiant had found at a time in history where these elected officials really needed to hear that. So that was something I was really fascinated in was that process and what that was like. And so we spent a good while talking about that as well. So if you're curious about you know the concept of, of speaking truth to power, the opportunity to speak to to elected officials about the things we have going on, uh, I think you'll find useful insight as she describes what she went through in that process. So with that said, that's enough of me. Let's get on over to Jen. For the folks who are listening who may not know you, go ahead and tell us a little bit about where you're working now and what you do there. Oh, gosh. Uh, I am now working at a small company called The Vertex Project. I came over here about a year ago from FireEye. And we're a small startup uh, currently developing um, some analytics software based on some work that we did at Mandiant and FireEye, um, originally designed to store and allow us to uh, analyze data related to cyber threat intelligence. Uh, But the current iteration is, uh, while it has a basis in that, is meant to allow analytics over any type of large and disparate data sets. So that's what I'm working on now. That sounds like fun stuff. Now, y'all are just recently kind of out of stealth mode. Is that correct? Or y'all still pseudo stealth? 
Well, I don't, I mean, we were never like officially stealth. We were just kind of in the, we're actually still writing software uh, mode. So uh, <laughs> now we, we have a little bit of software now. It's actually an open source project uh, on GitHub. So if people want to uh, check it out, um, you know, github.com slash vertex project. Uh, the software is called Synapse. Um, so we're currently working on that and it's, uh, it's maturing as we go along. We're, we're testing it, eating our own dog food, so to speak, you know, putting data in it, kicking the tires and, and seeing how we can make it work. Awesome. Now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, but you're obviously, it's a small company. It's a startup and you're doing that now versus, you know, you were at fire on Mandiant before, which is a really, really large company. How's the transition been for you from big company to small startup? It's actually been really nice. It's, it's interesting throughout my career. I feel like I've, I've gone back and forth between corporate environments and smaller companies, and they both have their advantages. I think, you know, corporations or larger organizations have the advantage of being, you know, more mature, more stable. Um, so that becomes important. Um, where smaller companies, you have uh, a lot of dynamism and a lot of flexibility. So you're in some cases able to be a lot more mission driven. Uh, you're working with folks that are really uh, about putting out a product or service and are really motivated to make it happen. And because you're small, you're able to be a little bit more nimble and a little more adaptable. And it also, I think, gives you a lot more opportunity because since you are a small organization, everybody has to kind of step up and do whatever needs to be done. So you're often able to get exposed to, to different tasks or different areas of the technological development or different areas of the business that you might not be able to in a larger corporation where things are a little more stratified. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that myself. And, I, you know, my, my company is a training company, right? But I've noticed that whereas when I was at Fire Manny, of course, we we worked not on the same team, but in the same company for a while. And um, I noticed like it was really all about specialization and getting really, really deep into a specific topic where, you know, if you go to the smaller company route or the startup route, you tend to have to generalize at least in a few other things in addition to the specialty you're maybe doing. And um, that's that's a bit of a different different approach. It is, but it's exciting because you get to learn different aspects of a business. So, it, you know, as opposed to just doing your day-to-day -day task, whatever that might be, we're obviously worried about things like development cycles and eventual pricing and sales. Um, you know, what's our market going to be? What are our customers going to want? So there's a lot of different business aspects in, a different to the, in addition to the technology that you're able to get exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. I know one of the things when, when I left to go on my own was, you know, I, I was used to the big company benefits of, okay, we have a marketing department and a sales department and, and people doing this research and that research. And of course, when you go to the small company, everyone does a little sales, everyone does a little marketing. And, and uh, that can be fun if you're the type of person who enjoys it. Exactly. Yeah. It gets you exposed to a lot of different things and, and really gives you some opportunities for growth as well. Awesome. Now let's, uh, well, let's take it back to the beginning. We want to learn a little bit about you and, and kind of how you got to the point you are now. Now, am I to understand you're a Michigan girl? You're up in Michigan. Is it Michigan? Is that right? That is correct. I am from the Midwest. Okay. Now what, uh, were you city Michigan, country Michigan? Tell me that. Suburban. I, I grew up outside of Detroit. So okay. some people associate uh, eight mile with Detroit. I was, I was 11 and a half mile. Eleven and a half mile. Okay, okay. I thought you were about to tell me you were you were from Eight Mile, and I, that was going to be very surprised. That'd be pretty funny. But uh, no, but they, they really do have. I mean, all the miles are just numeric. You know, we didn't get really creative with street names. Well, what was uh, so? What was life like growing up for you um, in Detroit? What, what do you what do you do for fun there? And, and what was life like as a kid? I feel like it was just like a typical suburban growing up. Um, you know, I don't really feel like it was distinct in any way. Just a typical, you know, working class family, you know, high school and 
on to college after that. It's very much a, a blue-collar town, automotive town. Uh, wasn't from Detroit, but it was interesting when I went to college. Um, Detroit did not have the best reputation at the time. So when I would meet people from out of state at college, um, they were always like a little nervous, like, oh, you're from Detroit. Like, like we had, I don't know, scary stuff in the schools or something like that. But it felt like a normal childhood. Um, I don't really feel like it was anything remarkable. It was, it was a good time growing up. Yeah. Now, what kind of student were you in school? Oh, I was a super nerdy, smart kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a thing I was good at, I guess, was, was being smart and doing well in school. So I was kind of quiet, um, pretty introverted, kind of shy. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was good. Okay. Now, now did you have any interest in technology at a young age? Um, I didn't, at least not in the way I got interested in, in it when I got older. Um, it was like the early days of computing. Um, so there were, you know, TRS 80s in the schools. And I had a, a good friend who had an Apple IIe. That was a big deal at the time. Um, but computers to me at the time were mostly interested because you could play games on them. And uh, we had uh, friends and neighbors who were trying to get us kids in, interested in programming and basic and things like that. But we just thought it was cool that you could play, you know, text-based adventure games on the Apple IIe. So that was about it at the time. Mm-hmm. So if I would have told you at that time you would eventually have a career in, in cybersecurity, you would have been quite shocked, I'd imagine. I would have been extremely shocked. Yeah. What did you want to be when you grew up? What, what were you thinking at that time? I wanted to teach English. You wanted to teach English. That's, I did, yeah. That's very different than what you do now. It is extremely different, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was never one of those people that was fortunate enough to know exactly what they wanted to do when they grew up. I was always kind of looking for something um, that would grab me. But I loved to read as a kid. I, I read voraciously. I still read a lot now. Uh, and when I went to college, I kind of kicked around in, in a lot of different classes and, and tried a lot of different majors, uh, but really just love books. So I thought it would be great to, to get my bachelor's degree and eventually, um, you know, get a, an advanced degree and teach English at university. And clearly my life didn't turn out that way. Yeah. Now, when you decided to go to college, I mean, you said you were super nerdy. So it sounds like you maybe knew, knew all along probably you wanted to go to college. So how did you, you know, what went into that decision? Did, did you actually end up majoring in English? I mean, what did you do there? Uh, I did major in English, and uh, college was um, it, it was kind of an expectation in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's not always the case for everyone. I, it just never cons- occurred to me to not do that. Um, my folks had both gotten undergraduate degrees, and the expectation that was set for me when I was in school was that I would go to university. Um, I'm the youngest of three kids, and I was actually the only kid to go directly to college and do four straight years to graduate. Mm-hmm. My brothers both went, but they both took a slightly different paths to, to eventually get there. But that was the expectation that was set. Uh, and then I did get my undergrad degree in English literature with the intention of going back to graduate school uh, someday and, and teaching. Oh, wow. Well, it's interesting how many people come into cybersecurity from, you know, really completely different things. And, and really, and looking at it from a non-security perspective, just looking at kind of the English degree perspective, a lot of people start with English degrees and go into things com- kind of completely unrelated. Uh, I, my wife is a good example. She got an English literature degree from Pomona, and then she went to med school, and now she's a family medicine doctor. Um, and you wouldn't, I guess, necessarily put those two together, although she would tell me that, you know, her love of reading is part of the reason she was able to go into med school and do those things. And, and I assume maybe that your love of reading obviously you know, greatly benefits the work you're doing now. 
Definitely. I, I joke sometimes that, that I'm, a, I'm a technical person who can write or, and who can communicate. So I definitely credit uh, a lot of reading and a lot of writing uh, during my education to help out with that. But I think also whether it's, you know, humanities, literature, history, uh, you know, I think if you if you do some type of liberal arts study, whether you major in it or you just include that as part of your education, I do think it makes you more well-rounded as a person. So I think it helps in a lot of, uh, of indirect ways as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast. I was talking to someone you know as well, uh, Richard Baitlick, and of course he's a he's a student of history. And we spent a long time talking about you know why it's important to understand history to understand you know where we've been in cybersecurity and where we're going and those things. And, and I think I think you kind of hit the nail on the head that, that you know being a student and a reader and understanding things beyond infosec are key to understanding infosec. So it's it's always nice to see people who who have that perspective. And of course that's certainly uh, one of the reasons you've been so so successful now um in terms of while you were in college what did you do you know in terms of paying your way through college did you have any like interesting early jobs while you were doing all that or even in high school uh yeah i came from a family that definitely uh encouraged us uh encouraged being a little bit of a mild way to put it to work um, so my brothers had paper routes, and uh, whenever any of us kids were old enough in high school to get a work permit, we were walked into the high school to get that work permit, and we were instructed to get summer jobs or weekend jobs or whatever. So I did a lot of things that were typical for kids at the time. So I worked fast food uh, in high school. I worked retail at the mall, um, some administrative assistant type jobs, um, both in college and shortly after graduation, a little bit of uh, accounting, not like formal accounting CPA stuff, but bookkeeping for some companies and things like that. So it exposed me, again, to a lot of different things. I think it teaches you a, a good work ethic, and it also exposes you to different things and, and helps you figure out, since I didn't have a direction, you know, what you do and don't want to do later in life. Now, explain to me work permit, because I'm not familiar with, with that concept. You had to go to the school, and they had to give you some type of certification or like something that would allow you to work, or what was that? Yeah, I'm trying to, I, we're trying to remember the specific labor laws in Michigan, but I think you were not allowed to work until you were 16 years old. But if you were 15 and your parents would sign off on it, you could get a work permit, so you could basically get a job a little bit younger. I don't know to the extent that which that applies now. I think it's a lot harder for high school kids and, and younger kids to, to get jobs. I think a lot of those are, are taken by adult workers now, so it may be a little bit different. Oh, okay. Interesting. I wasn't familiar with that. I don't think that's something they had in Kentucky, or if they did, nobody actually honored it, which will also <laughs> be the case too. Uh, cool. So yeah, it sounds like you had a lot of experience. What was your least favorite job you ever had of all those? I don't know that there was like a least favorite. I mean, there was definitely stuff where I, I would do a job and, and decide this is not what I want to do for a career. Um, but I think, you know, it, any job you do in your life, regardless of what it is or the type of work, you, you want to try to do it well, you want to take pride in it. So I think all of those jobs taught me something. Um, you know, they were hard and easy in, in varying ways. You know, when I worked fast food, we were, it was a pizza shop. So we were open late on the weekends. So we would, we were open until 2 a.m. And then you would have to close shop and clean everything up. So I would often not get home until 3 or 3.30 and come home smelling like pizza mm -hmm. and things like that. So, you you know, you decide that those aren't the things you necessarily want, uh, you know, for a, a 40 or 50 year career. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it still teaches you something about work. Yeah. Well, there, there's something to be said, I guess, in terms of like, I mean, I love pizza, but if I had to come home smelling like pizza every night, I would probably love it a lot <laughs> less. So there's there's probably something to be said for if you love something, you don't want to work in it because then you have to smell like it every day. Um, I, I, I don't know. 
What does cybersecurity smell like? Um, sadness? I, I, no, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Tears. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I guess cybersecurity doesn't have a smell, which is maybe why it's it's a good career. I don't I, I don't know. That's maybe that's some, that's something for kids to ascribe to is have a career where you can come home smelling like nothing. There you go. <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> there you go. Of all the things I've been quoted to say, that may be, that's definitely one of them. I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy in this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source, T H E S O U R C E, the source, and that'll give you 10% off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. I think you'll like what you see. And now back to Jim. So you're in college and, and you, get, you get your degree, and you said you went back for a master's, right? Uh, very briefly. <laughs> oh, 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 so that, that wasn't, uh, so tell me about that. Uh, well, okay. So I, I, after four years of undergrad, I was, I was tired of school. I wanted to take a break. So I was working and with an undergraduate degree in English and no teaching certification, your job options were fairly limited. So I was doing some basic marketing, some administrative assistant type work, um, and found it fairly dull, um, from the standpoint that, uh, I don't know. I just have that personality where I like to be busy all day long. And if I'm not, uh, I find that the day goes slowly. So the type of work I was doing at the time was not, you know, not definitely not a 10 hour a day job, uh, you know, things like that. So after a little while working, I decided I wanted to go back to school because that was the intention again is to, you know, teach English someday uh, and went back. Uh, literally for about a month (laughs) before deciding that uh, graduate English was not for me. So I did go back later in my career after I had transitioned into technology, uh, and I did get a master's in uh, computer science and information assurance. So it wasn't a straight CS degree, but uh, I did a lot of my, my technical learning on the job. And after working in technology for several years, wanted to go back and and get some of the formalized education that I hadn't had. Um, so eventually, did go back to get a master's. Okay. Now, so you went back. You went back for a month and then left. <laughs> so, so what, what what did you do then, or what were your plan, or what were you? I mean, it sounded like at that point maybe you weren't considering teaching anymore. What were you going to do at that point? I didn't really know. It was basically just keep working to pay the bills and you know figure out what to do next and. Um, what eventually happened was I ended up moving to Southern California for personal reasons. Um, plus, it wasn't a bad deal to get out of the, the Midwestern winters and the bad weather. So ended up in Southern California and needed to find work. So the first job I was able to find was with a defense contractor as a technical writer. So I was able to leverage my, my English skills, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Uh, but ended up in a semi-technical position where I was exposed to computers. I was basically writing standard operating procedures and help desk type stuff. 
um, but was working in a technical environment and thought, well, you know, this whole computer thing isn't too bad. If I have to do something with my life, this this might not be a, a bad way to go. So that was kind of how it all got started. Well, I don't I don't know if that's one I, I hear too often is, you know, technical writing as, as kind of the introductory <laughs> job in this industry. That's, that's really fascinating to me because I think there are a lot of people who – that would appeal to as an entry point into this job, you know, because a lot of people would say, oh, well, you got to work help desk or you got to do something like that. But technical writing is an entry point. It's pretty fascinating. I think if I would have had that opportunity when I was younger, that would have been something I would have preferred because I enjoy technical writing. But of course, I ended up with the, the sysadmin path. So what what was I mean, obviously, you're writing about SOPs and things like that you're talking about. How did you pivot from that into something more deeply technical? Well, with a lot of the stuff that I was writing SOPs for um, was procedural. So it was dealing with computers and technology. And it was actually around the time where, <laughs> this will date me a little bit, but about the time where Windows was making um, inroads as an enterprise computer system, which hadn't previously been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so so when Windows NT was a new thing. Uh, and we were migrating email systems. We were setting up exchange servers, and I was helping write the procedures for how to do these things. So it was clearly exposing me to the technology and how some of the technology worked. And with Microsoft kind of taking off in the enterprise space, the the MCSE was the hot thing at the time. So again, you know, deciding that computers wasn't necessarily a bad way to go from a career standpoint, um, I started doing a lot of self-study to to earn my MCSE, and that kind of led into various systems administration jobs um, from systems administration that got me into security because clearly if you're going to to run a Windows network, you you darn well better understand how to secure it, especially back in the <laughs> the lovely insecure days of Windows NT. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it kind of kind of went on from there. So it really was a, a, a lifelong on the job learning path. Wow. Now, did you actually did you end up getting your MCSE? I did. Wow. Now, now that's an achievement, and, and this may date me a little <laughs> bit too, but I, I know I, there was one point in my career where I was like, okay, I should really do this. And I remember the path at the time was I think you took one test and you were an MCP, and then like two or three you're an MCSA, and then MCSE I think was like seven. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I want to say six, but yeah, six. it was several. It was several tests. It was a couple year process. Yeah, that's that's um, that's some commitment. And for those who are listening who have no idea what I'm talking about, I mean, that's that's uh, put your SAN certifications aside. The MCSC tests were, were they were very difficult. It was one of those deals where you know there were four options and they were all right, but one was more righter than the other, and. Uh, <laughs> That was some commitment. So I, I'll be honest, I, I, might, I might be more impressed with the MCSE than if you had gotten the master's at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a credential, you know. Yeah. So again, for someone who didn't have a technical background, it was a way for me to build up credibility. Uh, I mean, to a to potential employer, but I mean, obviously also I was learning. I wanted to learn the technology so I understood how it worked. But it was a to bolster my resume um, so that I could get the work experience that I was looking for. Fascinating. Now, what what was next after? I mean, you you obviously got into computer, you know, the security aspect of it at this point, and you're you're learning about Microsoft operating systems. What was next for you in terms of job roles where you're actually using some of these skills? So, systems administration, a um, little bit of network security. Uh, I ended up working for a, a defense contractor where we were providing uh, network security services uh, for the DoD. Um, but from a Windows standpoint, in a lot of cases, that came down to um, configuration standards, but also things like patch management, making sure the AV was working and stuff like that. And and that started feeling a little old. So I was actually considering at one point getting out of IT altogether because um, the, the Windows route after a number of years um, didn't quite feel challenging anymore. 
and uh, I happened to take a, a, tr a training course in computer forensics, um, and I just found it fascinating. I thought it was the, the neatest thing ever. I was fascinated by the idea of, of investigating an intrusion, of going through evidence on a hard drive or on a network and trying to trace back and piece together uh, events that had occurred and, and what had happened and, and whether anything was taken or anything was lost. And that kind of opened up a whole new vista for me. Uh, and interestingly enough, um, shortly after I took that training course, uh, I came back to work and we had a security incident. So we actually uh, had a compromise on the network that I was supporting and they said, hey, Jen, you just came back from this forensics course. Why don't you go figure out what happened? <laughs> so that was literally my first exposure to something like that in terms of trying to do incident response and forensics. Um, but I was just fascinated with the whole idea of trying to, to put that puzzle together. Um, so that kind of gave me the bug again to stay in security, but to take it in a little bit of a different direction. Yeah. Now that first, uh, that first compromise you investigated, it wasn't, I'm not about to find out that it was like APT three and that was your lifelong like love affair with knocking Chinese threat actors out of networks. Was it? No, that was a little bit later. The, uh, the first incident was a, a 14 year old kid running a botnet, but you know, <laughs> okay. Well, as most incidents seem to be right, like it's disappointing. It's not the, it's not the really good stuff, but that, I mean, it sounds like that was fun. I mean, you, you did end up figuring out who it was. Did that lead to prosecution by chance? Uh, no, because he was 14, but he, you know, he did get a stern talking to from the FBI. Okay. Uh, but it was my first exposure to, uh, you know, working with outside investigative agencies. So, um, since I was a DOD contractor and it was a DOD network, uh, we worked with NCIS and FBI as part of the investigation. Um, and they were, of course, the ones who, you know, took it further and were able to identify um, the people who were behind it. But that was my first uh, experience working with those entities. Awesome. Now, I, I, you were doing the DOD contracting thing, and then at some point you ended up at, at Mandiant. So did those were those back-to-back, -back, or am I missing a few steps? Uh, they were not back-to-back. -back. Actually, um, through my exposure working with uh, law enforcement, um, I decided I wanted to try to go that route. And it was a... Uh, Two reasons for that, really. One was um, clearly we had issues with 14-year-old kids running botnets and things like that. But the, the whole concept of computer intrusions and hacking was kind of fascinating to me. But it was also early 2000s when we were kind of starting to get an inkling um, of what would later you know, turn into the, the APT thing. So there was, you know, rumblings of that starting to happen in the DOD. And we were, we were clearly aware that there was a problem, although we weren't really quite sure exactly the, the degree or the scope of it. And from the, my experience being able to do some incident response um, for the DOD customer, um, it was fascinating to be able to trace that back and try to figure out the problem. But uh, if you're working for a, I don't want to say a private entity because DOD is not a private entity, but if you're, if you're investigating your organization's environment, then the extent of your investigation typically has to stop at the borders of that network. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a, as a DOD employee, I can't go out to some ISP and, you know, commandeer logs from them. I can, I can try to call a sysadmin at another site and say, hey, I'm investigating this thing. Do you have any logs or data that might help me out and, and ask for assistance? But I don't have any authority to go any further. So at some point, solving that puzzle or solving that problem has to stop. But I figured if I could work for law enforcement, then clearly they have legal authority to go out and and address some of those things. So the, the scope of what I'm allowed to address gets bigger, um, but it's also helping in a, in a very concrete way try to address a real-world problem of, of cybercrime. Um, so that was fascinating to me. So it was a little bit of a long path to actually get hired by the government, but I did spend uh, five years 
uh, as an analyst working for government before I transitioned to Mandiant. Wow. So it was your curiosity and, and the unanswered questions that you couldn't get to by doing, you know, I guess private forensics, so to speak, that led you to wanting to do the law enforcement route. So you basically had access to the things you needed to, to kind of really and truly run these things to ground. That's pretty cool. It was, it was great. And, you know, I, I met some great people. You know, I also had a lot of respect for the, the folks that work for those organizations and that were conducting the investigations. Um, so it was both that, that personal desire to, to have a, a bigger problem to investigate, but also a, a definite desire to help address a, a very real problem. That's fascinating. Now, I know there's only certain things you, you can and can't talk about in regards to, to your time with, with the government, but in terms of you know how you enjoyed the job, it sounds like you certainly enjoyed it, but at some point you made the decision that it was time to go do something else. Um, and a lot of the question I get from a lot of people, especially listeners of the podcast, is you know should I work for government and is that something I want to make a career out of? Uh, what, what would you tell people who would ask that question? I think it was a great experience, and to this day, I, I think that in terms of the work that I was able to do, it's probably one of the best jobs, if not the best job I've ever had. So the work was fascinating. Um, the people were great. Um, you really do have an opportunity to make a difference. Um, I think where some people occasionally get frustrated with it is, uh, you know, it is government, it is a large bureaucratic organization, they're not nimble, <laughs> they can't turn on a dime. Um, you know, so policy, technology, things like that, sometimes are a little bit slow to change. Um, and they're also operating under a number of constraints that you don't have in the commercial world. I mean, clearly, um, you know, law enforcement in particular has a lot of authority that commercial entities don't have, but they also have additional, you know, responsibilities and constraints in terms of what they do and what they say, um, because they are, you know, official representatives of the government in some cases, uh, or in some sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it's a different environment. Um, for me personally, uh, I had a great opportunity to to address the problem, which is which is why I went there in the first place. Um, but one of my personal concerns was that I felt like I wasn't personally having enough of an impact. Um, the government was definitely, you know, investigating cybercrime, investigating fraud, investigating, uh, you know, some of the nation state stuff that, that you know, we refer to typically as the APT. Um, but it's hard to prosecute. It's hard to shut those things down. Like, how do you how do you impact that in the real world? Um, so at, at some point, I decided that I wanted to try to impact things in a slightly different way. Um, and I had been aware of Mandiant. Uh, we, we, Clearly, they had the reputation for investigating a lot of those types of cases um, and had, you know, run across them a, a number of times uh, during my time in the government. And if I couldn't solve the problem on a large scale, because it's a really large and, and difficult and challenging problem to solve, then hopefully I could go to a company where I could at least help solve it on a small scale by helping individual organizations and helping raise awareness about the problem. Mm -hmm. So I specifically reached out to some folks that I knew at Mandiant uh, to see if they were hiring um, and fortunately, it was about the time that they were starting up their threat intel team. So it was it was great timing, uh, and I was able to come on board. Awesome. Now, the threat intel team at Mandy, obviously, a lot of great things. And tell me if I'm getting my, my timing wrong, but this is really a time kind of in history wherein, you know, when you go into government, like that's probably really one of the few places you can actually make 
a large degree of tangible impact in cybersecurity, but probably about the time you were joining Mandiant was when we kind of have this semi-revolution in private intelligence. And then you have companies like at the time Mandiant and now there are other players in that as well, your CrowdStrikes and what have you, that, that do those sorts of things. And you could actually do this work and do meaningful collection of intelligence and, and analyzing that information and, and making meaningful products and things with it. Is, is that right in terms of timeline of how that evolved? Yeah, I think it's about exactly, you know, how it happened. I mean, I would I would put my my time in government started probably around the mid 2000s and I would probably put 2008 to 2010 about the time that the public really started to be a little bit more aware of of some of the threats that were occurring out there and I went over to Mandiant uh in 2012. So that was kind of the uh the I don't want to say the beginning, but the, kind of the upswing of the the commercial intelligence revolution, if you want to call it that. I also want to tell you about Squirrel. Squirrel is an investigation platform, and I really like it because it operates kind of how analysts thinks. It's built on a graph database model, so once you define your model, you have the ability to traverse objects and entities in your network and the relationships that exist between them. And as I know and as you know, all investigations are about uncovering relationships. I like Squirrel because it makes this really easily done. It is visual, so it's working like you think, and that's a unique thing. Not many tools do that. I'm a big fan of Squirrel. You should check them out. It's a really solid investigation and hunting platform, and you can learn more about them at squirrel, S-Q-R-R-L.com. And now back to Jim. Now, on the intelligence team, I mean, my experience, I wasn't on the Intel team, but I worked with, with you and your team quite a bit, very tight-knit group, folks who do some very important work. And obviously, history tells us we have things like the APT1 report, all the information that was shared out out of that and other things, which really opened a lot of eyes in your time there working on that team, what are some of the things that you did that you were most proud of? Well, obviously the APT1 report um, was the big groundbreaking, groundbreaking report that the team put out. Um, you know, Mandiant had been known for their M-Trends reporting, their annual summary of, of what the uh, the consulting team had been seeing um, before APT1. But that was really the first big report. And I think that was a time, again, you know, going back to history where there was a growing awareness of of hacking from China, you know, kind of in, in air quotes, that there was a lot of activity coming from China. And it was talked about in the press, but it was this sort of vague, hand-wavy, you know, China's doing this. And, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot to substantiate um, really the scale or, or the, you know, the suspected, you know, formalized nature of it, that it wasn't just these random hackers in China who happened to be hacking people, that it was something a, a bit more structured and, and organized than that. Um, and Mandiant was kind of in a unique position based on the investigations that they had done over a number of years um, to be able to tell that story uh, in, in a way that I think nobody else at the time could. Um, but I think what people don't realize is the amount of data and effort that went into that. It wasn't just something that you know was written based on you know six months of, of research and collection. It was literally seven years of, of data from investigations and additional research and analysis that was done by the Intel team and the consulting team and the managed services team um, to pull all that together and, and present it in a way that was hopefully compelling and, and did uh, our best to, to present the evidence to, to support those assertions. Um, so that was, I think, revolutionary in a way that no other commercial firm had done to that time. There had been additional reporting on, on Chinese threat groups and, and other major activity sets, but not to the, to the depth, I think, that, that we were able to put together. 
And I think for a while that that kind of became the standard that folks were trying to, to imitate. Um, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, was it kind of a surreal moment for you when that report released? And then, you know, 24, 48 hours later, when you could, you know, send links to your family members and say, here's people, here's people from our organization on CNN and, and Fox News and things talking about this work that I've done. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was um, it was very close hold until it was released. We, we didn't want it to leak. Um, so when we did finally publish and were able to tell people about it, it was a really exciting moment. Um, because I, I think it, you know, if you talk to people in the community, you talk to anybody who worked for a defense contractor or, or you know, even a lot of just the major corporations at the time, um, people knew what was going on, but they're, they're, you know, but it wasn't quote unquote official. Um, clearly the government, you know, was not willing or able to, to make a statement as to the extent of what was happening. And, um, there just wasn't a, a sense that it had been validated. It was always just kind of like, well, show me the proof Well, show me the proof. Um, so we tried to do that and tried to make people aware of the, the nature of the threat that we were facing, that it's not just, you know, random people trying to break into your network. It's potentially entities that are extremely well, well resourced um, and that are actually on a mission um, to obtain, you know, certain types of data or information. So I, I think it was a game changer. Yeah. Now, uh, clearly, tons of good came from that. That that's undoubtable. But you know, with, with all these these types of things that occur and these big paradigm shifts, there's things that kind of get left behind to some degree. And and obviously, the theme of that report was here's all this activity and it's all China. So that's all everybody wanted to talk about, at least for a couple of years. Do you think there was any kind of negative impact from that in the sense that you know it was most all the focus was on China and less focus on on you know Russia or North Korea or even less focus on on you know non nation state actors. Is that something that you've thought about kind of in the years following? I think so. Uh, and I think there's a couple aspects to that. Um, you know, there's in, in any industry and even within government, you know, there's always limited people, limited resources, limited money, limited time. So a lot of times your, your energy and effort tends to get focused on the thing that's most immediately in front of you. And, and China was noisy, and, and they were everywhere. So a lot of commercial organizations, a lot of security firms, a, a lot of you know parts of the government, I assume, were, were largely focused on that problem, whereas maybe other entities uh, were just learning. They weren't as, as noisy, they weren't as obvious, or they weren't considered as much of a threat. So to some degree, you know, did we... Did we focus resources where maybe we should have been focusing on some other things? I think that's probably true, but I also think that that's probably always the case. Mm -hmm. you, you never know what the next big thing is going to be until it until it hits. You know, we can we can try to predict and be a little bit proactive, but um, you know, there's never there's never enough time and, and resources to to hit everything that you that you hope you could hit. Um, I think what's been a little more interesting is how it has impacted commercial security in general. Um, as, as threat intelligence has become a thing, <laughs> for better or for yeah. worse, and how that's impacted uh, both the industry and the type of reporting that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've I mean we've kind of had this gold rush that that kind of happened afterwards where everybody's getting funding and then we have all these different companies claiming to do threat intelligence and, and quite honestly most of them are doing it poorly. Um, you know, there's obviously a certain level of data visibility you need to do that stuff effectively, and not everyone has it. So there's definitely you know good and bad that that have come from that for sure. But I guess ultimately more eyes on security and more people understanding the real threats that are occurring. That's that's definitely a positive, and I don't think anyone could could really deny that. Um, now. At some point, if I, you know, spanning your career, both in government and contracting and on to Mandiant, you started out, you know, 
technical and, and doing technical work and you move into, you know, what's still technical work, obviously, but you move into the threat intelligence space. And I think a lot of people who don't know enough about either would say that they're very, you know, that, that one skill set equals the other. And that's definitely not the case, right? It's, it's the case that they're different skill sets, but they're related. So the question I would have for you is, you know, for someone who is in the technical space, maybe they're doing hands-on forensics or they're in a sysadmin role or something like that. And they want to move more into intelligence and actually understanding the full spectrum of intelligence that is strategic, operational, and tactical. What, what does that mean to actually understand those things? What, what are you reading about? What are you learning? How do you make that transition into those specific intelligence subsets? It's really an interesting question. And, and I, I, I like the fact that you brought up that that some people might equate the two skill sets and say, well, if you're if you're deep technical, then then you can do intelligence, um, because I I don't think they're equivalent at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think that they are related, um, but they're not the same thing, and I, I think that's where the field itself has some challenges right now. Um, in a in a an oversimplified way, I would say that intelligence comes down to. Uh, critical thinking and logic. And if you have skills in those areas, then you can adapt to intelligence. Now, clearly, there's there's methodologies, there's ways of thinking about problems, there's frameworks in which to consider, um, you know, your different hypotheses in terms of of what's occurring or or what your particular set of data means and what its implications are. Um, But a lot of it, again, oversimplifying comes down to to that ability to to use logic and to, to use critical thought um, but you can't do those if you're not familiar with the subject matter. So it's actually kind of interesting when we were building up the intelligence teams both at Mandiant and FireEye, uh, and people would talk to us and say, "Well, we want to bring on a new analyst. Like, what do we? How do we? How do we train a new analyst? How do we train them to do analysis?" And there are definitely ways to train someone to do that. But what we realized we had kind of been assuming or taking for granted was that you can't train them to be analysis. Can't train them to be an analyst if they don't have that technical background, if they don't understand network protocols, if they don't understand operating systems, if they don't understand malware, you can't analyze intelligence related to those things if you don't understand the subject matter. Mm -hmm. So you really do need both aspects of it. And I think where the fields sometimes break down, and this is actually what we saw in the mid-2000s when the field was really just starting to evolve um, because we we had to make it up as we went, um, you had... You had intelligence people, I guess, within the government who had an intelligence background and were now looking at technical data and trying to make sense of it, but didn't necessarily have the computer training to do that. And you had technical people in places like defense contractors who were very familiar with you know, network security and firewalls and operating systems, but who didn't have the intelligence background. And we had to somehow bring those two skill sets together. And I think there are a lot of people who have managed to do it you know, sort of by hook and by crook and, and figure it out as they've gone. Um, but there's really some very limited formal training to get people to that point. I think it's changing, but I think it's been it's been tough to get there. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned two types of folks, those with technical ability, but no intelligence and analyst ability. And then the opposite, people who come from the intelligence world with no technical ability or limited technical ability. If you, if I, if I gave you, you know, one, if you had to build an intelligence team, I said your first hire had to be one of those two things, one of those two types of people, which one would you rather have and train? I probably, not that one skill set is, is better than the other, 
Um, but like I said, you, you can't conduct analysis over data if you don't understand the data itself. So someone with that technical background, um, you know, if they un already understand computers, they already understand vulnerabilities, exploits, malware, forensics, those types of things, um, teaching them how to think about it from an intelligence standpoint um, would be probably my preferred way to go. Like mm -hmm. I said, there's not, there's not necessarily one or the other, but that would that would be probably my preference. Yeah, and I guess if we compared it to other fields of intelligence, I mean, I guess if you want to learn to be a geospatial intelligence, you have to first learn characteristics of geography and the terminology and how to talk that talk to some degree. Sure, and yeah. you can go both ways. I mean, if you have an intelligence background but you don't know computers, you can obviously train someone in operating systems and, and technology and things like that. But, mm -hmm. um, but you do need the, the combined skill set, I think, to be really effective at the job. Yeah, no, that... Uh, that's interesting. That makes sense. Now, uh, tell me this, and this is something I, I've noticed over time is the people I know who do intelligence work who are really good at it. They tend to be folks who, who, like you mentioned earlier about yourself, love to read or at least are not opposed to doing a lot of reading. Do you think, you know, either, either embracing reading or a love of reading is an important skill for that particular career I path? I think it is, and I, I would extend it out and say it's not necessarily a love of reading specifically, but a love of learning. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like you have to go read a lot of fiction to be an intelligence analyst, although it, it can't hurt. But I, I think that, especially in, in technology and, and especially in intelligence, um, there's always more to learn. Technology changes quickly. Um, adversaries adapt. You know, they, they use new techniques or, or things that we, we don't anticipate, and we have to be able to, to learn and, and follow them and figure out what they're doing. So it's a, it's a career field where there's always something more for you to learn because you can't possibly know it all. So maybe an intrusion happens and, uh, you know, you're not sure how they got in. They, they use some unique way to compromise credentials. Well, maybe you have to go research the particular technology involved or the particular cryptography involved to figure out, well, what could the flaw have been that allowed them to, to conduct the activity? Um, there's always something that you need to research that you need to brush up on. So that ability and that willingness to, to continue to learn throughout your career, I think, is essential. Mm -hmm. What? Tell me this. I'm just curiously interested. What uh, For your reading that you do, what percentage would you say is fiction versus nonfiction? Uh, it's probably 60-40 or 70-30. I do read a lot of fiction. That's kind of my, that's how I defuse from, uh -huh. uh, from the stress of work. But I also do read, you know, nonfiction and, and technical works as well. For, for your fiction reading, do you have a particular like genre or style that you prefer? I bounce around. I'll, I'll read everything from, you know, science fiction and fantasy to literature to mysteries to whatever. It's really just kind of what catches my fancy at the time. I spent a good deal of, of last year reading through all of the Expanse uh, science fiction books. So that was fun. <laughs> I want to pause for just a second to tell you about Cloud Shark. I love Cloud Shark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based. So it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster. And it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files, which is a lot easier, especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book, Practical Packet Analysis, and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features, like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now, they've created a coupon code just 
just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. And now back to Jim. Uh, one of the, one of the things that you did uh, while you were at Mandiant that I thought was really awesome, and it happened while I was working there as well, was you got the opportunity to testify in front of Congress. Um, and I'd like to spend just a little bit talking about that because I think in, in our field, our field is so evolving, and the legislation, of course, kind of trails even behind that a little bit. And, and rarely do we get to have people who are super competent and well-spoken who go up in front of, you know, our elected officials and have an opportunity to influence policy like that. And you obviously got the opportunity to do that. So I guess, first of all, how did that come up? How did it come up that, that you had the opportunity to do this and did, you know, Mandy approach them or did they approach y'all or how did all that work? I actually don't know the full details of the behind the scenes. Uh, I suspect that uh, that they approached us. Um, it was actually um, under FireEye at the time, so it was after Mandiant had been acquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people from the company had previously testified before Congress. Obviously, Kevin Mandia has previously testified. Richard Baitlick. Um, so, uh, and FireEye also had uh, a legal team that acted as government liaisons and kind of helped keep the pulse of the company in terms of what was going on in government policy and also, you know, had connections um, to try to talk to people and, and educate them in, in a way that uh, that we felt was important to help direct policy. So those relationships already existed. So I'm assuming that somebody approached us and said, hey, we've got this subcommittee. We're talking about emerging cyber threats. You know, we'd like somebody to speak. Um, I honestly don't know how they picked me. <laughs> I, I was I, I was thrilled. It was an amazing opportunity. I'm really glad I got to do it. I don't I don't know if you know Kevin Mandia was busy that day and they're like, well, hey, we'll just get Coldy to go. But um, but regardless, they they asked and I'm like, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Um, so agreed to do it and it just kind of went from there. Now, when they asked you, did you hesitate at all, or were you immediately like, yes, I'll do it? I hesitated a little bit, but it was more like, how often do you get the opportunity to testify before Congress? Like, how would you say no? And it's kind of funny because for all of the the teaching and training and presenting that I've done in my career, uh, I still get nervous when I speak publicly. So it was one of those things where it sounded like a good idea at the time. And then it, the closer it got to my actual testimony, I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into? Um, but it was it was it was really a great opportunity and it ended up working out really well. But it was uh, it was actually really fascinating. Now, I know, I, I mean, I, I watch a little bit of C-SPAN every now and then when there's something I'm interested in. So I, I see a little bit of this. I read, I read your written testimony. Now, do you, you obviously have to prepare the written testimony, and then you go up there and you have a little while where you just, just talk. Now, are you essentially reading the testimony, or are you just kind of following along with it? I mean, what's, how does all that work? Um, you actually read the testimony. So you do have a prepared statement, and that gets entered into the public record. Um, if I'm recalling correctly, the, the public statement can be a little bit longer, and that just gets entered in, and then you do have a, a statement that you read. So uh, the, the initial part of the testimony was literally just sitting at the microphone and reading my prepared statement. But then after that, there's a, a question and answer period where the members of the committee can ask questions of the panel, and the individual members can, can answer ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Now, how ner- you said you get nervous when you, when you speak. How nervous were you when they started asking questions? I was nervous. I think it, what usually happens is I'm a little nervous when I start out, and then you kind of hit your stride, and you're like, okay, I know this. It's, it's fine. Nobody's going to bite my head off. Um, so, it, you know, you, you kind of get in your groove, and it's okay. 
Yeah. Now, obviously, you you clearly know the facts. You know what you're talking about. But but these testimonies can sometimes, as everything in D.C. is, they can be used for political purposes. And you you always have the op- the potential for someone one of one of the congressmen or congresswomen to ask you questions that are leading. They're trying to get specific answers for some political purpose that maybe we have no idea what it is. Was that something you were thinking about, kind of you know overtly thinking about that when you were giving the testimony, or were you just you know just trying to push that out of your mind and just focus? on what you had to say um I, I wasn't specifically it's interesting because it, it wasn't um it wasn't hostile testimony like we weren't being you know compelled to come up there and talk about something you know bad that had happened where we were on the carpet you know we were all testifying as as experts in the field um and you know it was our opportunity to educate the committee and and you know maybe do a little bit of that speak truth to power thing mm-hmm. um and, uh, you know, I'm not a Washington insider, so maybe I was a little bit naive about the political aspects of it, but they, they definitely were there. Um, and the committee members themselves, the chairman uh, and then the uh, the ranking minority member, get to make an opening statement, um, which, again, gets read into public record. So there were clearly some things in those opening statements that, that were political. You know, you could clearly tell that there were some things related to um policies that were that were ongoing at the time and and a little bit of the political parties jabbing at each other over various things um not too many of the questions were leading we had kind of been told in advance some of the broad topics that might come up um but we weren't you know given specific questions that we might get asked so we were told like well they might ask you questions about iran and sanctions and stuff like that but um you know, no, no really in-depth preparation. So we were somewhat prepared, but a lot of it was really just off the cuff and be prepared to respond to whatever they came up with. Sure. Now, how, I know this is a tough question, but how much time do you estimate you probably spent preparing for this? Um, most of the preparation was in the written statement um, because that's your opportunity to get, you know, what you want to say on the record. So what did we want to put in that, you know, five pages of, of testimony that got entered into the record? Um, so it was partly writing that and preparing it. And, and that was very personal to me. I had folks that helped with an early draft and then helped with the editing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's was clearly my name was going on it. So I wanted to be very comfortable with, with what was in it. But we also had to get it approved through the FireEye legal team. So we had to make sure that everything that was in there was okay with the lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> most of the preparation was was back and forth with the editorial process. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things. Uh, I'm actually looking at it on my screen right now, and I read Questions it. Questions were just off the cuff. <laughs> I, I read it when uh, when you um, when you gave the the testimony, and I read it again just recently, and it's incredibly well written. I mean, you, you kind of go through here are the various threat actors, and you talk about China and Russia and and Iran and North Korea, and also just you know generalized cyber crime as well as terrorism, things like that. It's incredibly well put together, and I think it's it's actually something I have it bookmarked. I often send it to people when you know they're considering. You know, people ask me all the time. I teach a, a infosec writing course, and they'll say, you know, how can I write, you know, relay technical concepts and things like threat intelligence to you know non-technical people who have vested interest? And I say, well, here's a great example of that. Um, and I think I, I just think you did a great job with it. So I, I was, and that was a day I was very proud to be a fire employee and was proud of what you were saying up there. Well, thank you. That's very flattering. I, I was actually. It, it's funny that you say that because. Uh, it was this, you know, this thing I got asked to do, and I thought, okay, well, this is just whatever. I have to go to Virginia, and we'll go up to D.C., and we'll do this testimony thing, and then it'll be fine. Um, I didn't realize until the day of that it was actually going to be broadcast, so it was like live streaming on the web. <laughs> um, 
and the entire Intel team and uh, clearly other people within the company, um, I think, kind of stopped to watch the testimony. Uh, and it was really gratifying um, to come back to the office and everybody was like, oh, we're so proud of you. You did such a great job. And I hadn't really considered it in the light of how th- so many people saw me as representing um, not, you know, the intelligence team, FireEye as a company, um, and we're really pleased that, that, you know, not me specifically, but FireEye had the opportunity to go up there and, and represent the, the work that we were doing and the things that we were seeing and, and talk about, you know, our concerns. So it was great to be able to represent them in that way. Yeah, it, it was really fascinating. And, you know, we, we occasionally had other people who went up and testified as well. Like you said, Kevin and Richard did that. And I know I, I led a small team. And one of the things I always made it a point to do was say, hey, take time, you know, take this part of your day away. And we were all working remotely at home. So we didn't do this together, of course. But I would say like, hey, go watch this because whether you you like it or not, these people representing you and the things they say represent the work we do here. And like I said earlier, it's very few times we get the opportunity to to as you said speak truth to power, and that's that's what what we got to do there. You know, via via you and via those other folks, I thought it was important that we all watched it. And and for that matter, you know, I told the folks, and I doubt I don't think any of my folks ever do this. I was like. You you had you know this person. You can email her. You know, like you can Skype her. Like if you like or didn't like something she said, let her, let her know. Right, obviously in a polite and tactful way. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's I mean that's kind of what what we're what we're here for in that regard. So I thought that was it was pretty cool that you know even you know the, my, the folks working for me and some of them were pretty young. Like like you know one of them was was twenty one years old and was fresh out of out of college. And you know you can say hey you know someone who testified about the work you were somewhat involved in to Congress and that's pretty darn cool. It was it was cool. It was a great opportunity. I'm really gratified that I was able to do it. Yeah. Now, do you think the the folks listening? Do you think the con- congressmen and congresswomen listening? Do you think they were receptive? Do you think they they got the value out of it that you hoped they would get? I hope so. I mean, you know, I would be I would have to be pretty cynical to say that you know that's all just for appearance and and nobody really cares. Clearly, they're they're there for a reason. They're serving on the committee for a reason. Um, so uh, you know, you have to believe that they're that they're interested. Uh, it was you could you could kind of get a sense from the questions that they asked. I think some of them were were definitely you know more engaged than others. Um, that's not really a great term. I don't want to make it sound like they weren't interested, but there were there were clearly members who were were very concerned about the issues and and very involved and up to speed on the problems, and and some that were maybe a little bit less so. But I do think it has value. Um, you know, it is the ability for industry. Um, in academia, uh, to talk to our leaders about what we're seeing and about our specific concerns. And I think that that's a great conduit for, for information and for, for making the, the policymakers and the lawmakers aware of what we're seeing and what our concerns are. Fantastic. So if, they, if you got asked to do it again, you would definitely do it. I would. And I'd be like, ah, oh, what I get myself into? But I would, I would, it would be cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that's cool. I was really excited to talk to you about that. So um, we're getting kind of near the end here, but uh, obviously at some point fairly recently, as we talked about earlier, you, you decided to, to leave Mandiant and go go to the startup and, and kind of focus on really some some more specific things. Um, you know, in terms of, of living the startup life, especially in, in Southern California, I mean, we mentioned we talked about some of the the good. Are there any other like really like outstanding things about it that you really just loved after coming from a big company? And are there things you miss? Are there things that you know have been a struggle for you in, in the work you're doing there? Oh, I don't miss meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 
Yeah, I think uh, obviously the you know the larger the organization you work for, the more coordination that needs to take place across the organization, and a lot of communication needs to happen. And there was a time in my career where it felt like a, a good deal of my day was taken up simply meeting with people, and then you know working at night trying to actually you know do do work, do the work that was coming out of all of those meetings. Um, so we're a lot smaller and leaner, and we can actually focus on the mission. Um, but I think the thing that's been interesting and a little bit challenging for me where I'm used to that, you know, 100 mile an hour pace all the time is coming to a small organization where we're still building. Um, and that happens slowly. Like, you know, we're, we're obviously putting a lot of time and energy into, you know, the software and the analysis and the analytical processes that we want to, um, you know, we want that to entail. Uh, but it takes time to write code. It takes time to test things. It takes time to figure out, you know, how exactly do we want to build this product and where do we want it to go? Um, so I've been forced to slow down, which has been kind of weird for me. <laughs> no, I can, I can understand that. And of course, I, I, I'm absolutely certain that those the dreadful meetings you were talking about, none of them were in reference to the meetings that we used to have to have together. I know we always had the best meetings. Exactly. It was everybody else. Exactly. Okay. I just wanted to make sure everyone listening <laughs> was clear on that, that our meetings were awesome. Uh, good, yeah. <laughs> good deal. I, used to, I, I looked forward to our meetings. Oh, great. Now, now you're just being nice, but I'll take it. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, well, well, great. Now the last question I'll ask you before we get you out of here, this is the same one I ask everybody to end things for people listening and they decide, Hey, I want to be Jen Coley. I want to follow a similar career path. I want to do the things you've done. I want to testify in front of Congress someday, do all these cool things. What would your advice be to them? Oh, gosh. Um, never stop learning. You know, learn as much as you can, absorb as much as you can. And that can be through any number of different ways. That can be through formal education. That can be through self-study, through picking up your own books and reading, through turning on a computer and fiddling around to figure out how things work. Um, but also learn from people around you, you know, learn from your peers, learn from your mentors. Um, that goes both ways. I, I don't think I've ever worked for or with anyone that I've, I've failed to learn from. Um, I think, you know, be open to what other people have in terms of experience, what they have in terms of perspective. You know, ideally, you learn positive things from people. You learn leadership. You, you learn communication. You learn dedication and, and hard work. Um, in some cases, you may learn negatives. You may have a, a boss or a coworker where you say, I, I don't want to emulate that person. Hopefully, those are the exception more than the rule. But I think just being open to that experience and also open to opportunities. You know, don't be afraid to try something new. Don't be afraid to step into a position, um, even if it, it might not be exactly what you think you want or the way you think your career should go. Um, I sometimes feel like I stumbled into my career. <laughs> like I said, I, I was never a kid who, who knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I just kind of took one step and then another step and then another step. And I ended up here and, and it's been great. So I think just, just having that openness and that willing to try and, and willing to adapt, um, it can, can get you a lot of places. Awesome. And I especially love the advice about being open to learning from people who maybe you, you get the negative experiences from. And, and I've always been a fan of you can learn something from everyone. And, and oftentimes that is just how maybe you don't want to be around people or don't want to treat people or, or things you want to don't want to do that other people's did do. So I think that's such fantastic advice. So, so Jen, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on with us today. Thank you, Chris. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. 
that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you really enjoyed my conversation with Jen. As always, I love to hear your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at ChrisSanders88. Always looking for suggestions for guests, things of that nature. We've only got a couple more episodes left here for the second season, and then we're going to take a nice long break, and we'll be back probably later in 2018 with the third season. So going ahead, thinking about guests for that. Let us know if you have someone you think would be a great interview or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the Source Code Podcast or if you'd like to be a sponsor. With that said, I do want to thank, again, our sponsors for this season, uh, Ninja Jobs, Squirrel Data, and Cloud Shark, all great products, so be sure to check them out. With that said, we'll leave you to it. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, it's a beautiful day to catch bad guys.